The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today. Prince Wine Store, bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world. And Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil. Grown, harvested and first cold-pressed in northern Victoria. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello everybody, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corey Perkin and we are recording our 292nd episode. Oh my God. And we still have things to talk about, Caroline Wilson. Hello, my dear potty partner. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm eating a mince pie. <laughs> it is tis the season to They're be very nice, it. aren't they? And and um, and scoffing mince pies. Yeah, Sam. It's a from, good segue to our first segment, actually. But you might have some homework to do first. Well, there, uh, there's a little bit to talk about, but um, yeah, we will be getting on to the Christmas. It's an annual favourite topic of Carol and mine. No surprise there. But we'll be talking about the silly season. Caro, it's officially now one month until Christmas, and so we That are... comment is going to strike fear and dread into the hearts of many people listening to this, Oh, Corrie. my God. Well, the decorations are up in Collins Street and all through the city. I can tell you that. My local supermarket has the tins of Christmas shortbreads on display, and Bluey has reached icon status by becoming the subject of this year's Maya Windows which is amazing. Which is amazing because the windows have been going since 1956 and you have to be a real icon like Cinderella or Snow White and the Seven Dwarves to, or Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie to crack a mention in the windows. But not Bluey in her fifth year. She and the Blue Healer family are there. So that's worth seeing. Yes, we're going to discuss the silly season today in all its glorious, crazy, frustrating greatness. And we will be talking turkey. Chalking Turkey with Miles Thompson, actually, of Prince Wine Store. A few we, bits of, uh, sorry, go on. I mentioned to him the other day that it's uh, having um, a husband who spent so much time in America. Every year I have the same thing. Why won't you give me a Thanksgiving dinner? I can think of so many reasons why I wouldn't. But we did pose it to Miles. If you were having a Thanksgiving dinner or indeed Christmas with a turkey, what's a good wine to go with a turkey? You've got a terrific book recommendation. I have a foolproof cake recipe and you and I'll both be discussing the Noel Coward doco we saw yet again another British film festival event, the gift that keeps on giving for us, Caro. We're ripping through them, aren't we? Um, a little bit of homework from me. We got a great email from Gabrielle Edmonds, who is loving our podcast and thrilled we're about to reach 300 episodes. She's given me a little correction, so this is a little apology. I talked about that fabulous recipe I made, the uh, Moroccan lamb meatballs last week. Now, the site is, in fact, not Tin Eats, but Recipe Tin Eats, not Tin Eats. Maybe being a little bit pedantic, Gabrielle, but anyway. <laughs> no, I think that's I think that's entirely appropriate, Caro, that we, we, we got it completely wrong there. Well, I don't think completely wrong. We gave them a very good plug and everyone knew what I was talking about. But thank you, Gabrielle. So this is an Australian cook, Naji Mayahashi, whose 2022 book, Recipe Tin Eats Dinner, set a debut week record during its publication week in October in 2022. It was the highest selling title by value with 4.4 million sales. Wow. From 164,000 units sold. Gabrielle, I feel you've got a, you're pretty, um, you know this 
you've been seem very close to this subject. Funnily enough, I went round to my daughter's house the other day and my son-in-law, Oscar, fished it out from his bookshelf and said it's one of his favourite cookbooks. It's oh. a, everybody is raving about this cookbook. Really? Recipe Tin Eats. And my daughter made the point that she's really sick of cooking recipes from her phone, which is what you and I, which is what everyone does now. You know, oh, I've got some lamb mints in the freezer. Google lamb mince meatballs, mm. and which is what I did and found the recipe, Tin Eats recipe. But it's so lovely to have a cookbook open at the table. There's nothing like it. Uh, there is nothing like which it. And we've and tried to do more often. I'm trying to do more often. Uh, look, there are so many in my shelf and there are two or three favourite recipes in each and I'm determined that I'm going to explore further those cookbooks because, you know, you just pick up the cookbook and this particular one has the great lamb recipe. Or this one has the great cake recipe, and then you just don't explore anything else. So that's my uh, that we have to talk about our New Year's resolutions in a couple of weeks. So. Well, this came up about recipes, and we've said we'd do a recipe out of each of our recipe books. We've said that before. I personally have never done it one you know one every week for the whole year. Um, but someone said the other day when this came up about doing recipes from your phone or your iPad or whatever, oh, I just can't follow recipes. I, f- I just find it too. Stressful. I mean, I've always when I'm cooking, I always follow recipes. They're very unless hard I to have follow. a tried and true, you know. Yeah, they're they're very hard to follow on a phone because a lot of them, a lot of the sites have ads that pop up. So you're just getting, you just got the ingredients, and then you swipe, and then there's a series of ads. So you have to keep swiping, and then if you want to go back to check, oh gosh, was it two eggs or three? You've got to swipe up again. It's quite annoying. Caro George Papadopoulos said. Um, on Facebook, Caro mentioned she thought Anthony Hopkins was very good in the film One Life, despite thinking he was past his prime. Has she seen him in The Father, which is without a doubt the greatest performance of his career? I think that's the film he plays with uh, Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman. Oh, look, it's it. I have it, it's it's yeah, it's grim. It was just too grim. I mean, a the brilliant has film. Dementia, is that yeah, right? brilliant film. It's a father daughter relationship. Very very traumatic. Very grueling. Brilliant performances by both those main characters, but just a little bit. I found it too depressing to be brutal. I think I wondered whether he was past his prime you and might decided have he was not after seeing you one might, I think you did. You actually did wonder rather than declare. Um, but that was George, after I accused Graham Samuel of taking my seat in the cinema <laughs> and then having to apologise because, in fact, our it seats did. were a bit further over in the same row. <laughs> If you're going to take on someone, take on a power broker like and Graham Samuel. Corey apologised to him and he goes, don't worry, I'm used to it. <laughs> I don't really know what that meant. Um, I don't know what Johnson Von Trapp means on Twitter here. Now, Corey, pandas moving from Washington to China is sad, but Shakespeare being held in Washington, D.C. is okay? Mm, not sure what that one is about. And that Lisa said, of course, it's recipe tin eats, not tin eats. So that's great. Thank you very much. And um, I think that's probably it. There's, there were a number of comments also about the sound last week. We have fixed it, everybody. The gremlins in the system, uh, all is well now with our sound, I hope. Corrie, so, you talked about how the you your husband wants you to cook him a Thanksgiving dinner, but rather meanly you've refused to acknowledge his American heritage and long decades that he spent in the US. Well, it's a little Caro, bit. Carol, he was born in... Wangaratta Base Hospital. So let's just first of all get the heritage He spent most of senior school, college, and the first up until his late 30s, didn't he, in America? Formative years in the States, but why would we be cracking open the turkey um, and, and, and 
because celebrating it, the pilgrim's arrival. Because it in means the new, something to him. Land. Well, I would ask you, Corrie, why now has Black Friday replaced Boxing Day mm. as our biggest? It, it's it's overtaken it. And, you know, we had a long, we did a big thing about Black Friday a few years ago and I bagged it saying it's, you know, Black Friday to Australians means something entirely different, which was the bushfires back in the um, early part of the 20th century. But um, anyway, well, Black- that horse has bolted well, and it's too late and it's better timing for people to shop, I guess, because they get their Christmas shopping done. Well, look, they do. Which is a segue to... Yes, to the silly season. So, Cara, let's talk about the silly season, but let's start with the retail um, component in that. Um, thank you very much. We've just been delivered a coffee. Oh, God, this oh, is no, such I, good I deserted my place. post in many ways this morning. <laughs> you forgot the coffee. It's just coffee been delivered. Coffee was one of them. And we've had Sam's beautiful mince pie. Is is there no better morning? So, Caro, before we get on to the silly season. Maybe and- Miles will bring in, bring in something. <laughs> even stronger to have with another mince pie. <laughs> okay, so that is my case in point, everyone. Silly season, you just are looking for the next drink. No, not really, but some people are. Um, but just on the shopping thing, you know, when I was a shopkeeper, when I owned a business, Black Friday was a killer because uh, most of the bricks and mortar shops in my village five, ten years ago were not even thinking Black Friday and people, of course, were shopping online. So our dollars were going overseas to these to these other brands, mostly in America. A big shift has happened because if you look at pretty much all of the your local shops, all the shops that you love and adore, they're doing some sort of Black Friday promotion, which is so interesting that um, they're taking advantage of an American nuanced thing, which was always traditionally the day after uh, Thanksgiving, uh, on the Friday after Thanksgiving was always the big shopping day and it's America's biggest shopping day of the year. And it's a tradition. And now, of course, because we seem to copy most things that they do in popular culture and business, we now have it. But I have noticed, and some of my old Hawksburn friends with their shops, they're actually introducing Black Friday. So maybe it's a way of just filling the coffers to ensure that you have a solid run into Christmas. Well, it's if you can't beat them, join them. I mean, I clearly so, it's yeah. become an international thing. I think so. I mean, my kids, for example, who have Monty, Lib and Will, the Monty Slippers, um, Monty Store is the is the website, but they have had uh, Black Black Friday, some sales, some pre sort of Christmas sales, so it's under the Black Friday umbrella, and it's done really well. People have come to the site, they're thinking about their purchases, they're either buying stock or they're thinking, I might get something like that for Christmas later on. It's good. It's a and, good thing. And it, it, February, March... March particularly seems to have become wedding season, although we've just had a few weddings, you know, big weddings of people we sort of know in the last um, few weeks. But February, March seems to be wedding season and people are getting on Black Friday. You know, Boxing Day is a bit late to buy something for a wedding in February, March. Um, Ditto the Christmas shopping, obviously. Do you remember the um, opposition leader, state opposition leader, Alan Brown? I don't know why I remember this, but Alan Brown, I interviewed him once and he declared, he said he did all his Christmas shopping on Boxing Day for the following year. (laughs) (laughs) Remembering Alan Brown, that doesn't surprise me. So one thing I remember about If Alan Brown was an older woman, um, he'd be wearing constantly the fawn... Or beige cardigan. Oh, that's a, that's a bit mean. Actually, it's a, it's a nice actually I have a beige I just, cardigan. I that's say. a mean thing to say. He 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 did everything, including you know, like bonbons for the following year. He oh, said, but it's that, great. The, I all get the bonbons. Price. I get the bonbons. 
I've done that before because bonbons they're throwing out at reg, oh, you know record anything, low prices. A bit of enjoyment. Going okay, shopping. so so we have. I'm just, I'm just. Can I give you a quick top five before you move on, which I just was thinking about um, yesterday. Top five. Top five worst places to have an office Christmas party. Okay, I'll start with the fifth worst, <laughs> and let's face it, they're all pretty shocking. At the office. Dreadful. You know, let's do it at the office this year. We'll all just stay here and get blind. And so then the next day... And somebody, next ends week, up, somebody ends up on the photocopy machine and breaking mm, it. Or in the stairwell. As, mm, anyway. Go on. Office roof Go on. Top. I can't wait to hear that story. Oh, no, someone we know. You and I have been sworn to secrecy on that story. Someone we know might have kissed someone in a stairwell. Anyway, in the office, you've got to come back to the scene of the crime the next day. Dreadful. Fourth worst place, crowded, noisy pub where 10 other uh, companies are having their office Christmas party. Dreadful. Third worst place, private room in any upmarket Oh, you restaurant. can't escape. Cannot so escape. So awkward. Oh. So awkward. And, you know, everyone's trying to be on their best behaviour. you no can't move. Really you get, you get, st- you get stuck next to the boring person at work you never speak to and you're stuck there for three courses. Second worst place ever to have an office Christmas party, offshore, out of town, at night. Just a nightmare to get to. It seemed like a great idea back in July, August, when so-and-so from accounts was organising the Christmas party. No. It's a nightmare, it's a pain in the neck, and it costs a lot of money. And again, when things get messy, you don't want to be far from home. But nothing is worse than having your office Christmas party on a boat in a Yarra, on the Yarra. In fact, on any boat in any part of... Sydney Harbour. I'm talking, you know, we're sitting here in Melbourne. They are, that is the worst place, and just please don't ever ask me to another... Christmas party on a boat on the Yarra. You know where the best place is? Because you know why. You really can't leave. Well, you, you really can't leave and also a tendency to throw up. Oh, probably not on the Yarra. Oh, and it's, 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 it's hard to get around. and no, You're it, stuck. You're stuck for four hours. You're stuck. And and there's nothing yeah, there's nothing nice about it. You know it. the best place to have an office party I went to once? Where? Uh, Luna Park. Been, well, we've, I think we might have gone to I that one together. That. We did. And so the really good thing the about Luna Park. The zoo is another good one. The zoo's good. Too. Uh, you bring but, the kids. But, the, but the, the good thing about the Lunar Park, and kids were invited, so that was more meaningful. So you got to see all your workmates and their kids, and that was great. But you can escape anytime. There's no one clock watching. There's no boss going, oh, they didn't put in at the office party. But it's yeah. kind of fun too, because you can pick your ride, pick your thing. I don't think I was ever a big, I don't think that was ever my shtick, the office Christmas party. I didn't mind small lunches at nice pubs. And we did that. I remember when I worked at TV Scene, you know, for one year, I had, we had a great office Christmas party at a pub in Carlton or I think it was the old Sullivan's pub or something, because everyone, that's what everyone sort of did in those days. But I mean. We had a great one at The Age once. I was put in charge. Of, sorry. <laughs> Yeah. I was put in charge of it with um, with our friend Louise Graham. So of course it was a great. Of course it was a great one. And I, I don't think I went to that one. We a friend of mine had a warehouse in Pran off Chapel Street, and we took it over, and didn't decorate it or anything. Don't waste the money on that sort of stuff. We just had really good booze, really mm. good quality, because that's another. Uh, that's it's another problem good. with office parties is never good. Never good grog. Never good. The company will never, ever buy you. I think those you. two terms are mutually exclusive. They will office ne- Christmas party They will never booze. give you a good Clover Hill. 
they'll give you the cheap spumante. That will that's just guaranteed. Caro, on the weekend I had a um, I had a silly season uh, kind of um, rewind back to the nineties moment. And Joel is with us today, who's our lovely producer today. And Joel, who's right in the thick of this, I suspect now, will completely understand. So in the uh, when we talk about the most difficult silly season you've ever had, I think you'd probably agree with me, Carol. It was when we were in the, in the mid-90s. We had kids at school, kids at kinder, parents, parents-in-law, nieces, nephews. It was still the big family Christmas idea. You're buying gifts for everybody. You, you've got your job. You've got your job, the aforementioned office parties. Crazy um, fun, though. You book club breakups, uh, you know, tired parents, wrapping until midnight. Gym breakup. There's set, a lot set, of breakups. Setting up the Barbie mobile after the kids have gone to bed way too late because they wanted to watch Carols by Candlelight. So you've got them off to bed at 10. The Barbie mobile is looking at you. Hello, set me up. You know, 2 a.m. you stagger to bed, all that stuff. Well, on the weekend, I was at the Ballarat family's house. And so as everybody knows who listens to this podcast, Checker and Charlie live in Ballarat with their three kids, one at school, one at kinder and one at daycare. Everybody's about to transition into the next year. And I said to Checker, so I just don't know how you do it. And she said, you have to share your calendar with your partner, which, of course, you can now do on iPhones. Or So that, that just makes We've life so much easier. We started to do that. And Brendan said yesterday, can we just get a paper calendar? And he's Mr. Techno, and he, he's not coping with the Google calendar. Okay, so can I just tell you what they have on in the next couple of weeks? This is, and this is, I think this is wonderful family life, and I think Checker and Charlie and their gang do it so well because they, in Ballarat, it's a slightly smaller than a city area, so they get involved in everything, and the kids have some amazing experiences. But this is Checker's next month. She, she's just said, I just want to go to bed. They have the Bush Kinder Ceremony, Max's Kinder Transition Day, a Prep Open Day, a, which is a playground gathering day, a round robin of futsal tournament because Harriet's playing futsal. So there's four hours of watching that, which is, you won't know that, but it's like soccer for kids. Mm, I know futsal. Harriet has four Wizard of Oz dress rehearsals plus two performances. Not one dress rehearsal, four. And you know what she's playing? That's channeling Miss Penelope's ballet school. Remember trying to get the hair into a perfect bun? Do you know know what Harriet's role is in the nativity scene? Checker opened the envelope and it said, oh, the narrator, she came home and said, I'm the narrator. And Checker thought, that's a pretty good role. That's well done. Mm. That's great. Looks up. Number 15. Narrator number 15. There's 15 narrators. There's probably more. I don't know. But anyway, she's See, four dressing you know, Remember in the day that, you know, you really, when you got, I remember getting Joseph one year and I knew I was eaten a bit. Like some things you've just got to get, you know. Mm. Well, like these days when they get a prize. A friend of mine was a tree. Then you go to the prize giving and a they friend, get prize. A friend of mine was a tree and her mother never recovered. She oh. just stood in the back as a tree in a brown leotard. Caro, life's um, about being a tree sometimes, Corrie. Check us that. Have check, to accept, <laughs> you have to accept sometimes that you don't get a gold star. I mean, I, you know, the, this thing of everybody getting something. No, well, just on that. But having said that, congratulations, so, uh, Harriet, for being the 15th yeah, narrator. Yeah, don't diminish, for goodness sake. That's so rude. So so I went to the calisthenics competition. That was why I was there. And they have oh, – um, that was a that was their breakup. At least they did it in November. That was very sensible of the calisthenic coaches to do that. But it was a three-and-a-half-hour calisthenics competition. Carol, we saw 40 events, 40 on stage. Anyway, Checker said, look, I mean, Checker's not, Checker and Charlie are very, um, you know, they're frugal with their spending and everything, but there are 15 teacher gifts. Now, it might end up being 
a box of shortbreads or something, but there are 15 teachers in their children's lives they wish to thank. The swimming coach, the kinder teachers, the prep teacher, the calisthenics coach, like it goes on and on and on. I just said, darling, when are you going to get time to do all this? And she just said, well, you did it, which is probably true. I don't know. how, How did we do it? We just were very busy and it was all wild and great fun. Can I tell you one teacher present story? When Ned finished school in um, year 12, after after the exams were over, I thought, oh, look, I didn't really give any teacher gifts. And, you know, I didn't, apart from parent-teacher meetings, you didn't have the really ongoing relationship with teachers in year 12 that you do in junior school. And But I always was pretty good. So I made a good big batch of lemon cordial and I took them to the main sort of teachers who... Um, I thought, you know, I would like it. I think I had three or four bottles and I was arrived at school and I asked a teacher, I asked someone, could you tell me where I find the um, English lit- English teacher? And he pointed me to the spot and then I found the other teacher and I found the this teacher and the that teacher. And that afternoon I got a call from an unknown number and he said, hello, my name is Mr Perkin. My name is Mr Corrie Perkin. And I said, hi, you're... um." You're the brilliant literature teacher I've heard so much about. He said, yes, and you bowed me up today and asked me directions to the English teacher for, and you gave her a beautiful bottle of lemon cordial. And guess what? I was the only teacher you didn't give any cordial to, <laughs> and I was the one you bowed up to get directions. He said, out of every teacher at the whole school, and we're talking 100 or more than 100, isn't that, isn't that hysterical? Yeah. And I just went, oh, Mr <laughs> Perkin, whose name is not Perkin, <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, I'm, I feel so embarrassed. I couldn't even say I'll come back tomorrow with another bottle. Like that was it. That was the last possible day. School was closing down for the year. I was never going back. Would you actually ring up someone and shame them that way? The way he shamed me. Well, how did I leave him out? And maybe it was the Caroline Wilson factor. He no, no, it was nothing. Maybe I'm, in the staff room he was saying, "Oh, can you believe it?" And Caroline Wilson didn't give me one, and they've all said, "Go on, give her a he call. She's English, famous." He'd gone to the trouble of finding my call. number. He was an English. I mean, he was a brilliant teacher, and I must say, Ned did. It's brilliantly too late to start English sucking up now, Caro. And I wanted to thank him for his great work, but by then I just thought this this relate this is one of those relationships that has failed dismally from the start, um, and it can't be retrived or uh, um, resurrected, I should say. Oh my goodness! So, anyway, sorry. Um, no, Joel, have you got a busy – you're just <laughs> nodding, yep. Just, how many kids? Two. Two kids, yep. You're right. Good luck. They're more worried about who the Bulldogs got in the draft, Corrie. I mean, seriously, yeah. for some of okay. us, Christmas is still a long way away, just so, for us organised people. So for everybody who's listening to Joel this, just probably nodding their heads going, I know what this is. Joel probably says to his missus on Christmas Eve, like one of our friends' husbands <laughs> famously said, so are we all sorted so for Christmas? Christmas? <laughs> Joel's laughing, laughing rather guiltily and knowingly. I uh, know. Well, look, I think we, it, it, just to our friend whose husband says that, um, Anna from the op shop, take note. <laughs> um, Anna, I think what you should do is you should give Chris, uh, like I do, I, uh, like, I just say to, uh, and I've done this for years, Pete, you do the picking up of the food because if you are relatively organised, you will have organised, you know, booked a ham or booked a side of salmon or whatever it is. She, that I you, think she might have mentioned. I might have drive mentioned around on a, and drive around and walk pick. with the girls. So this was our topic. Mm. And um, Trudy, who used to work in advertising, launched into some very funny Christmas party stories because you know those ad people they just they went off. They went off. That was really wicked. Some of the stuff they got up to, and. Um, 
Anna had some very funny stories about the op shop, and um, but I think she might have given. I think we all decided giving our husbands a list this year was a good idea. Well, I don't have to because Mrs. Doubtfire just whizzes into action. Usually has a couple of days off with work prior to Christmas, so he is sent around to do all of those chores, and in fact. Um, is in charge of finding the real Christmas tree, which I know is um, problematic for... And, in fact, there was so much pressure last year about us not cutting down trees. I think this year probably we won't do a real tree, but that's always been his job well, in the if, past. Well, if he doesn't, I'm going to have a crack at him because every time he's come round and I've put up my beautiful Scandi wooden tree, he's gone, Wilson, Wilson, you know, not even a real tree. I'm like, listen, it's be- it's a beautiful, creative, very tall tree, and get off my back. So mm. if you have a fake one. Well, I'll not be... fake, just a timber one would be nice. Well, I have a timber one that was once. A... Oh, like a bit of a. I have a, I have a timber one. You'll, you probably don't remember it in the bookshop. It used to stand in the central part. Oh, so... the, yeah, that's stunning. Yeah, yeah. Well, so is mine. Made, dare I say, by our cousin Colin. There was some beautiful. with woodwork. Woodwork. Some beautiful new decorations around. There are there some are lovely. Can I get on? Can I get on to some ones. tips? Because people here are now um, they've, colla- they've collapsed with exhaustion. You can add in too, because you'll have tips. So I've just said the office party, avoid it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> or just stay for an hour. And I said to Checker, "What do you do when you have a full diary?" And she said, "What you've got to do, Mum, is at the very start, like October, November, when you receive an invitation, just if you, if, if 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 you don't think you'll be able to do it or get there, call it right then." Don't have the added mm. stress of a month later pulling out of something. Just call it right then. Don't even think about your diary because your diary is going to be full by the middle of November. Just call it and say, so sorry, can't come, which I think is good self-preservation. If you do go to the office party, my tip is stay for an hour. Now, the school concert is unavoidable. So I think like Checker and Charlie, you divvy everything up. So basically for three weeks, you're going to events separately because otherwise your babysitting bill would be horrendous. But can I just say from my experience on the weekend, don't bring your phone out and film your kids because it's illegal and somebody behind you is going to tell you off. I'll just oh. leave it at that. Oh, God. Um, if you've got the book club, bridge club, golf club, end of year dinner and drinks, that's fun, but be strict with yourself. There are seven nights in a week and you might be out for five so there's no rule that says um, there's no there's no rule that says you must accept every invitation. Please, everybody, remember that. And if you're invited to two things on the one, one night, try and be sensible and just say no. I'm only going to do one, and try also and have one night on, one night off. I know that's impossible, but if you can, Sam, who was in here before with the mince tarts, said that she was she had the lovely party on Friday and then Saturday night she was in bed at six thirty. Sensible, Sam. Um, those friends who say, we must catch up before Christmas, put it off. I know. I, I do know that. But You're guilty of this, Caroline. I, I, but I love catching up with people. And I, there are people listening to this, Corrie, who have not many plans. And are I was thinking, about to get onto that. So I, I think appreciate the busyness and embrace the chaos. And, yes, try and keep a lid on it if you can. But... It is a great excuse to catch up with people. It's We all need deadlines. You and I are journalists. We know that better than anyone. So go um, on. Well, one of my points, I just said with parents and families, um, have a chat with everybody in your family. Discuss everyone's expectations in advance about Christmas Day. What does Christmas Day actually look like? Just to avoid all those disappointments. Um, you know, granny might say, I want to sleep you know me, I always like to have a sleep. Okay, that's fine. Nobody's going to get tense about that. Let's have the presents Why before we sit down. Why would you get tense about Granny having a sleep? <laughs> I, was to- I was told off once by one of my children for falling asleep on the bed on Christmas Day. 
Oh. What? I think it's mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you always? Well, generally I go into a food coma at some point of the day. But people can get agitated, especially if the charades is about to start. Oh. Um, and as, as I said, Christmas shopping with food and grog especially, book it in advance and then organise a family member to pick it up for you or help you pick it up at least. For those people who don't have a lot on over this silly season or Christmas period, remember that all your friends, family, people you know, everybody at this time of year is in a particularly generous kind of mood and there is absolutely nothing wrong with texting or phoning someone and just saying, is there a chance we can catch up? I haven't got a lot on in the next week or on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. You know, can I call in or, or something or can I bring a plate or can I do whatever? 99 times out of 100 at this time of year, you will find somebody will be very, very happy to have you in their life and have you there. So I think reach out as much as I hate that term. Yeah. But I think I think it's okay to call people. If you feel lonely, call someone. Don't don't be lonely at this time because it it's everywhere this Christmas spirit almost to the like exhausting and annoyingly so. Every film that you watch is a family thing. Every ad has happy people around the table. It can be quite exhausting and quite stressful for a lot of people who... The Coles and Woolworths ads are exhausting enough, making you think about what you need to do. I, um, I, I, I'll keep, no, up, keep up your exercise would be my other tip, don't you think? Yeah, oh, definitely. And you and I were talking about armour force, the immune, you know, have, have an immune defence on hand if you're not feeling great. Just You're actually making it sound like we're preparing for battle. <laughs> We are. I mean, it's Christmas. I, the, the what only, do you want to call it? Well, the only other point, the only other point I'd make is, I feel like, and I know that it, it's a long time since the real, the worst of the pandemic, and there are people at the moment who seem to be getting a really bad strain of COVID. But I feel like this is a first really non. People just don't want to think about COVID. There's some terrible, terrible stuff going on around the world, tragic situations, obviously in the Middle East, obviously still in Ukraine. Um, but I, I just think generally it feels like everything is just completely open again. Mm. You can't get into, you know, top restaurants again. The pubs are packed. You know, it, there's a, a good there's a good spirit around the place. There is a good spirit. It, here, I'm talking about in this country. I mean, I understand a lot of people are grieving and worried about what's going on. And we're all worried. But I, I think generally... But I think also there's a lot of anxiety for those reasons, for the world situation and for people with with mortgages and, and looking for new homes or a home, and a what rental you... home. A pe- there are a lot of people who are really stressed about this particular time. Uh, the economy is not as thriving as it should. And, and there's high anxiety. There's a lot of post-lockdown trauma and anxiety in the society. Uh, there are a lot of teenagers and kids in their early 20s who are still, just talking to some parents recently, who are still having issues with, with what they've been through over the last four years. I think there is a lot of anxiety and I just think, you know. I think hug, people are looking, I think hug, people are looking to celebrate. I think even with the cost of hug living each crisis, other, Hug each other and stay and, people and celebrate going, what we've got is what I would say. Yeah, well, I, I agree with what you're saying, Corrie, but I do think people are spending money on entertainment and food, and that's where you know, the, and and travel. So we'd love to know from Potties, what are you spending your money on, and are you st- are you stressed coming into Christmas because we have another four weeks of talking about this topic? <laughs> if Anna from the op shop was here, she'd say choose a colour theme, and I think hers without letting 
too much out of the bag. Oh, no. Don't, shouldn't we wait till she's here to tell us in a couple of weeks? Okay, eggs? yeah. No, she's got a different colour theme this year. Oh, has she? Didn't she do pink last year? Yep. Different this year. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Mm. I'm thinking lemons. You know how lemons are everywhere at the moment? Are you having? Are you hosting Christmas at yes, home? Yes, I am. So am I. Not a big one, though. Not a big one because a lot of I the family is going to be in Sydney. Hopefully we'll just sit well, outside. My like... friend Penny gave me this beautiful tablecloth with oranges and lemons all over it last year and I thought because it's small I'd do a lot of citrus, a oh. bit of orange. Might even serve up some Aperol spritzes and... Oh, I'll be Bowls around at of 11. oranges or clementine. <laughs> no, clement. What have I got at the moment? A lot of tangelos on my tree. Lem, oh, uh, you I know, see. maybe a citrus salmon. Well, maybe that could be Miles's topic for next week. But speaking of Miles, he's not talking about citrus this week. He's talking about tw- turkey, twiki. And what to serve at the Thanksgiving that you won't be hosting for your husband? <laughs> you do the pumpkin pie, Dale. You do the pumpkin pie. Let's bring in Miles. Search princewinestore.com.au, bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world. And here comes Miles on the trolley for the cocktail cabinet. Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store. Go to princewinestore.com.au or call into their beautiful shop in South Melbourne and have a chat to Miles and Gab and the team and stock up for your Christmas imbibing. Mm. Miles, we're imbibing today with turkey. Thanksgiving, turkey. Thanksgiving and Christmas. What do you Absolutely. suggest, or are you taking us a bit off piece? Yeah, I'm going off piece today. I thought I think we've done it before, and I went really sort of classic stuff last time we talked about it. So you're going rogue, in other so words. So we're a little bit rogue. Yep. A little bit more interesting, but um, follow me along. So I'll, I'll do the first one because it's probably the best value, and I think you know punters will sort of love it, and it's great summer wine too, which is La Dama Vini Valpolicella. So this is from the northern part of Italy. It's a blend, but it has this lovely, lots of think like super crunchy, juicy, plucky kind of red cranberry fruit and and, and car- red currants and that real kind of spectrum of red fruits, maybe a little black sort of wild fruit kind of thrown in there, a little bit of kind of dark spice, but but quite quite fresh, super, super vibrant. And so the classic one of the classic matches or, or two classic matches for turkeys is Pinot Noir or Gamay. And I think as far as Italian wines go, this this starts to get sort of pretty close, particularly from this producer who makes it in a sort of lighter, fresher style. So I think with the turkey, this would be absolutely fantastic. All steel tanked. It doesn't really see a lot of wood. It's all about that freshness. And it's also the kind of wine, you know, if it is a hot day on Christmas or if you're doing Thanksgiving or whatever, um, you could pop it in the fridge for like, you know, 20 minutes and chill it down and it would be fantastic It as must well. be the most beautiful colour. Yeah, I love it. They're really good. They're a bit. I think their Valpolicella is a bit underrated. You don't, you know, yep. you don't see it as much, but it can be really fantastic. And just as a, just a great sort of, you know, drink, just for drinking, not thinking. So where is it from in Italy? So it's kind of like that Verona region up, yep. up, up in that kind of oh, beauty, more beautiful. to the northeast there. Yeah, and I think Valpolicella and Suave. So that's thirty dollars. Great. And if, and if anyone wants one that's a little bit that's a that's got a little bit more oomph behind it, they also do what's called a Rapasso Superior, and they get the the dried grapes from Amarone, which is the other famous red style, which is a dried style, really rich, high alcohol style, and they get those dried grapes, and they ferment it with the Valpolicella, and it just gives it a little extra kind of grunt and richness and kind of dark ground spice and things like that. So if you want something a little a little a little meatier and beefier for those people who don't want something too light, you could go the same producer but their Rapasso, which is a really great little wine too. I just licked my lips. I just licked my <laughs> lips. This sounds delicious. So yeah, Miles, good. you it's mentioned really tin as opposed to I guess oak. 
barreling. Is that what you were saying? So, so yeah, so you know you can choose to put wines wines in oak if you want, but this producer tends to to keep it all to sort of steel tank, and it just preserves all those really sort of fresh aromas and flavors. Yeah. Wow. Ra- okay. Rather than that kind of mellowing out that that oak brings. Okay, so that's the Valpolicello for thirty dollars yep. um, from. The, that beautiful region in northern Italy, just um, I guess to the eastern side of Verona, would it be in those? I guess it's around sort of there? To, to the west and kind of in the middle. Yeah, around sort of those head, beautiful you know, plains before kind you go to the hills. East of Milan kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, beautiful hills, mountains, Alps. Mm. Um, and what's your second one? And the second one, a little bit more premium. It's um, it's from Burgundy, but it's Burgundy's other great white, well, other other white grape, which is Aligoté. So, if you you know, many people might not sort of know about it, but it's um, you do see it grown a lot in Burgundy. Um, there are some other bits and pieces other than Chardonnay that's grown in Burgundy, you know, but it's certainly a Chardonnay sort of region. But Aligoté is sort of really starting to. Um, we've seen a lot of improvements and a lot of producers producing some really fantastic stuff. Maybe not quite as complex as, as Chardonnay and certainly the top sort of um, examples from the region, but lovely, just kind of easy, early drinking, this lovely kind of yellow fruit and kind of citrus and always has this, I think, this lovely sort of like orange peel, kind of dried orange rind element to it. Okay, that Love was me this. fiddling around for my pen to write this down. <laughs> I'm buying this. Yeah. It's really expensive. It's got, it's got a mellowness, and, but it's got some really fresh acidity, so cut through that turkey a little bit too. So so it's $60. Okay, so this is a special. So this is a bit special, but if you've sort of, you know, looking at prices of burgundy these days, this might be a nice way to get in the market without... <laughs> So really, putting your house up for sale. Oh, that's Ali Gote. <laughs> like a white burgundy. Yeah, a white grape. It is from burgundy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, you know. Ali, Ali Gote. Ali Gote. Yeah. yeah. It. yeah. Um, and $60 for that one. Yeah. That's, um, that's a really interesting choice. Because Chardonnay is the other sort of classic sort of white that you would maybe have with turkey. It's got a bit of that richness and that oak behind it. So this is just, you know, a different version of the same sort of thing. So I thought a little... Something a little fun. They sound fabulous. Mm. And of course, if you subscribe, if you put down the M-E-S-S promo code when you're ordering. Which is what you'll be after you've drunk two bottles. <laughs> which is short for messenger. You will get a 10% discount. So, and you go to www.princewinestore.com. You do. Look, I've I've said this on the podcast in previous years, but I don't like turkey, but I really love the sound <laughs> of those wines. Yeah. Well, with another the right wine, you'll love me, it. Another reason for me not to do... I love turkey. Thanksgiving. Just get a dinner. small one and brine it overnight, as Anna Roy's recommends. Nah. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. I like, I like, I like turkey. It's a, ti- yeah. it's a tired old bird. I've always been bird. a fan. Tired no, it's bird. not. But if you br- like you said, if you're going to brine it, you're going to keep all that moisture in yeah, there. They're so. de- absolutely delicious. Yeah. Cook it on a, you no, know, I'm, a I'm tray getting, with I'm water and no orange from... juice underneath. <laughs> I'm too old to <laughs> Part of my citrus theme. Yeah. So next week, we would like... Clearly. We would like to talk about citrus next week because Caro's just announced that she's going to do a citrus theme for her Christmas table. That sounds like Because she just doesn't have anything else happening in her life that she has to focus on that. So would you like to provide some wines for her Christmas? that was an unnecessary dig. Yeah, wines and I said oh sounds like God. some good spirits could be in there too. So. Oh yeah, I'll do some wines brandy and or something. Mmm, well, there's some yeah, there's some cool kind of liqueurs and citrus kind of. Maybe liqueurs you could give us a bit of a, li- a list. Oh, remember I'll that you, fabulous a, liqueur you did with things. the beautiful label last year? Oh, it was mm. absolutely stunning, and I 
We should have written it down. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, lots of good stuff. Well, everything you recommend is um, always well received. But the Corey, just to the Valle Policella. The Valle Policella is thirty dollars, uh, which is just cranberry red currants, very Christmassy, very perfect turkey. For turkey yeah, right. Perfect, perfect. All yours, Miles, not mine. Um, the turkey part and the Aligote, which is a white grape uh, variety from Burgundy, is sixty dollars and. If you are looking for other choices, go to Prince Wine Store and check out their Pinot Noir or their Gamay section of the shop mm. because, Miles, you also think that those are really good Great matchups. Too. Yeah, yep. fantastic. Thanks, Miles. Great to see you. Thank, yeah, good to be here. Powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned red energy today. BSF, book, screen, food. Caro, book, screen and food. And I cannot wait to hear your review of this book tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Look, it's it's a fabulous book. It's by Gabrielle Zevin. We did it for our book club, as you know. I didn't read it at the time, but I was at book club last week where, gee, Anna Funda copped a bit of a... Of a serve, actually. Oh, Mary told me that. Mm. I, I, I liked the book. I'm, I'm surprised. What was the some main, people liked it? What was the main issue? To quote one book club member, to um, wifedom, it was a mess. Oh, and I do agree that there was too much of the present day and too much of the earth is round, telling us about, you know, the whole sort of wife syndrome, which is one other book club member pointed out. Younger readers in their 20s, 30s and 40s, found it fascinating. But anyone who has been around any anyone older than 50 will go, well, yeah, we all know that women do a lot more than men and have full-time jobs and go to the dentist appointments and do the swimming practice. And, you know, it was just a bit... And and obviously I and I had also hadn't realised that some of the facts in Anna Funda's book had been disputed by people close to George Orwell and his um, either his... Son's family or Eileen's yeah, family, and the um, you know the connection from the Spanish Civil War, and that there's had to be corrections made for the second edition, which I didn't know. That's interesting. I, I think she's a brilliant that. author, but that I certainly didn't think it was my favourite, mm. having now read it. But I loved this book. So tomorrow. Gabrielle, as in the female Gabrielle, I yeah, she's a she's a scriptwriter and an author and a journo screenwriter. She wrote a book called Elsewhere, which I've also read. But this, oh, Corrie, this is the most beautiful story. It's a romance, even though it's not a romance, between two gamers. It's about gaming, but it's not really about gaming. Um, and it's about to be a film, and I think that, um, I think it's going to be a brilliant film. The two main characters, look, they're, they're just both absolutely brilliant characters. Sadie is the girl and Sam is the boy. Sam, How old? Well, when they meet, they're very young. They're like, oh, gee, I think about 11 or 12 or something. They meet in hospital. Sadie's elder sister, her beloved elder sister, has cancer. So she's spending a lot of her summer holiday in hospital because her mother has to visit. They have to visit the sister and be with her every day while she has chemo and various treatments. And she befriends a boy called Sam. She goes in one day to um, play Super Mario Brothers or having never done any gaming in my entire life, I still absolutely love this book. And she meets Sam, who is her age, and we find out has had a horrific car accident which killed his mother and his leg has been broken in 27 places. And she goes in and the, the, the story is, the premise is set up they spend an afternoon on playing Super Mario Brothers together and they get on really well. 
And the next time Sadie comes into hospital, the nurse comes up to her and says, are you the one who went and sat with Sam? And she says, yes. And they say, well, he's not spoken to anyone since the car accident. You're the first person he's spoken to. We need you to keep coming in. We want you to keep, and she's coming in anyway to visit her sister with whom she has a complex relationship, certainly the, with her sister having cancer, which is another tough part of the story. But she, and this is all very early in the book, but she does it as a community service. She agrees to take it on as a community service, even though members of her family warn her that one day he's going to find out that she did it as a community service and he's going to be upset because a real friendship ensues. Mm-hmm. And um, they... But she gets a lot of points and it means she gets a special award at her bar mitzvah and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it ends badly when Sam finds out. I've always loved a story where the the friendship is not quite as it seems, that there's been an ulterior motive and then there's the big confrontation moment. There are some brilliant characters. When you think, when you think of films like that, Caro, I'll think of a few while you're talking. Well... The story really starts, the friendship breaks up. He says, I never want to see you again. He doesn't go to her bar mitzvah. He makes her a present, which is an interesting part of the story. But they run into each other when they're both college students at a railway railroad station. Um, he's at Harvard. She's nearby. Um, they become friends again. They are great friends. I mean, their friendship is, they absolutely adore each other. And yet, as the... You know, from when you sort of are told from the back of the book, it's not a romance, but it's a love story. And there are other romances for these wonderful characters, Sadie and Sam. But the story is what happens when they decide to make it, create a game together. And this game is sort of based on the Odyssey. And they're, they're brilliant gamers and they're both brilliant kids. And they're both largely friendless, although they both have serious people in their lives when they meet up again. One is Sam's roommate, Marx, who is also an Asian, I think an Asian-American, Japanese-American, and is very rich and is almost becomes Sam's minder and benefactor just because he adores Sam, who will always have trouble walking because of this dreadful car accident. And Sadie is um, embroiled in a love affair with her lecturer, who is a famous gamer, Um, by the name of Dov. Anyway, what happens is it's almost like a proposal. Sam says, I want... Are you giving this away? No. Okay, good. We're going to make a game together. The years go on. There's fame. There's fortune. There's copyright issues. There is ownership issues. There are massive fallings out. Oh, it is the most beautiful story. It is the most beautiful story, the story of Sadie and Sam, these two sort of fairly lost souls and... The gaming becomes part of the story and it it becomes almost a microcosm of their lives and in some ways a part of their lives and the the symbolisms in the games they create. And the way they're described is so artistic and so beautiful. It is a wonderful book, Corrie. It is just a wonderful book. I can't wait to see the film. And I think because it involves gaming, it's going to be very clever the way they do it. Um, but no, look, I, I cannot recommend this story more highly. I mean, there's both of them, you know, they're all both slightly crazy too. I mean, they're very obsessive characters and things go horribly wrong when they're creating this game with their health and everything like that. But, um, you know, you go back to the, the line from Shakespeare, tomorrow, tomorrow and tomorrow, and it was sort of about the futility of life, I guess, wasn't it? 
I'll leave you with that. I think that's, <clears throat> that sounds wonderful. I'm just thinking of, um, I think, the movie where I felt most sad where the friendship seemed real and indeed was, I think, at the end, but someone felt betrayed was Roman Holiday. Mm. Mm. Don't you think? Yeah, that was a great So Audrey, great Audrey Hepburn is a member of a royal family of Europe and um, she's in Rome for a series of diplomatic soirees and events and Gregory Peck is the American journalist who's sent to cover the princess's visit and he pretends to be somebody he's not. Great movie, huh? It um, is, but then you but then he he's a good egg in the end, isn't he? Well, sort of, yes. He did want them to ride off on that motor scooter together though, didn't you? And thank you to Gina, my great our great book club friend, whose book I shamelessly stole from your shelves so I could read it in time for today's <laughs> podcast. Now, Corrie, last night we went and saw Mad About the Boy, the Noel Coward documentary. I think it was, of everything I've seen at the British Film Festival, this is my number one. What about you? Yeah, it was pretty good. I do love a good doco. Barnaby Thompson was the director, Caro. We remember him from Fisherman's Friends a couple of years ago, that movie oh, set in Cornwall. Yeah, yeah. He also directed the Magray uh, crime series of Magray, the French detective. Oh, with Rowan Atkinson. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And he did um, the more recent suite of... St. Trinian's movies, and he produced Wayne's World. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I know. That's an amazing fact. So this is a lovely doco on the life of Noel Coward, who was one of um, 20th century Britain's great artists. He was an actor, a child actor. He was uh, a, a composer of songs, even though he had never had a piano lesson in his life and didn't know how to read music. He wrote plays, I think 60 in all, maybe more, um, Private Lives, Blythe Spirit, Brief Encounter, that sort of, um, that, that's, the, that, that's just some of them. And he starred and won an Oscar for his performance and directing of In Which We Serve, which was a very a sentimental but a really important movie of its time. It was made during World War II and it was a kind of a hurrah to England um, very, very ra- rallying the country. Yeah. yeah, rallying the country. The king and queen, for example, vis- at the time visited George the Sixth and his wife, Queen Elizabeth, visited the set. Didn't he shamelessly steal the plot from Lord Louis Mountbatten? <laughs> we gather so, according to Mountbatten himself. <laughs> according to Mountbatten, and after that, um, Noel Coward thought, and everybody thought as well, that he might receive a knighthood. But unfortunately, he didn't. He didn't receive it until he was seventy. And he died only two years later in the 60s, early 60s. But um, the interesting thing about the – I, I loved Alan Cummings, who was the narrator, and Rupert Everett was brought in to read. We didn't see Rupert um, perform this, but he was Noel's voice in many of the letters and diary notes. The really fabulous thing about Noel Coward in terms of um, – if you're, if you're interested in, in this sort of history, is that he was a great chronicler of his own life. So he left a lot of ephemera, diaries, letters, collected his letters, and also home movies, which was his special subject. And of course, a lot of this is on show in this, in this particular documentary. I think for me, the most interesting thing was that Noel Coward, Caro, um, uh, his greatest part was playing Noel Coward. So as we learned from this documentary, he was born into a, um, a, a very 
poor working class family. His father lost his job as a piano salesman. His mother had to open up the house and make it a boarding house to bring in the income. His father, as we understand, was a bit of a hopeless person after that and retired to the front room to make his toy yachts. And Noel's mother had great ambition for Noel. Indeed, Noel did too. And at nine years of age, he left school and went on to the theatre scene as a young child actor, and he was very successful. So um, the interesting thing here, Caro, is that he passes himself off as one of, uh, for the rest of his career, he passed himself off as um, the aristocratic, witty, stylish Englishman. Playboy. Playboy. And, of course, he was none of these things. He was, uh, I mean, he did have natural style and, of course, he was witty, but he was not aristocratic. Um, and he was he was witty and smart, but he was self-taught. He was a complete autodidact. And he said in one interview, because there are lots of cut-ins with interviews that he did with David Frost and different people in the 50s and 60s. And he says at one point, I left school at nine, but I was self-taught. I devoured books. And I think he must have been quite brilliant. And of course, as you said, playboy, and he was a heartthrob. He had model boy looks when he was young in particular, but he was gay. And of course, um, he found great love of his life with the South African actor Graham Payne later on. But, of course, in his lifetime, gay, Noel never came out because it wasn't until 1967 in the UK that the Sexual Offences Act was passed, which decriminalised private homosexual acts between men over the age of 21. Prior to that, it was a criminal offence, and Noel and all of his cohort were so terribly anxious and worried. I didn't realise John Gielgud had been arrested. For yes. an, in, an incident at a public lavatory. That's in his biography or his yeah, memoir. Yeah, I didn't realise that. Yeah, isn't it terrible? All the men, but do you remember there was that, not that you and I were around, but we've watched and read enough about it. In the After the war and in the 50s, there was this rise of conservatism and British MPs, conservative MPs in particular, were rallying against homosexuality in in um, in society, whereas in the 20s and 30s it had kind of been quietly tolerated. And all of a sudden, famous people, well-known people, MPs, actors, dancers, were all being pulled out of men's lavatories and, um, and thrown in jail. And it was shocking. So, of course, Noel and his cohort were terrified of this. It was just an awful, awful time. When and he made the point in that us, interview about the lavatory, he says it, it means to say... Laboratory uh, or something. Or, or uh, something like that. And he says lavatory and he goes... Oh. Freudian slip. His interviews are hysterical. The one with David Frost and they're both, was, both smoking the cigarettes yeah. as they're doing the interview. And who's the young guy who's interviewing him? I don't know. It's a familiar face. It is yeah. a very familiar face. He's so funny mm. and witty. Mm. I found his um, sort of weird, not really spectacular career as a sort of a spy um, in mm. France during World War Two as a bit of an ambassador for the UK over in America during World War II, the trip to Australia, which was sort of a rally the troops exercise. So interesting. It and was. The, and the fact, as you say, that he played, put himself up as something and yet he had disgusting table manners and really liked food like mutton and mushy peas and stuff and not the food he pretended to eat. And then his sort of, and his dreadful financial problems, partly because he was obviously hopeless with money and his first love you know, was terrible with money and took over everything. The um, oh, the, the young lawyer. actor, yeah, uh, uh, the Canadian lawyer. That's right. Yeah, and he. Um, so that was interesting. His work with charity and the children's acting, the orphans for theatre, whatever it was mm. called. Now he ended up being in a film directed by one of these kids. Yeah, who he adored. which was the the Italian job, which was the his Ita- last film. 
which are, which is just a great film. Which yeah, is a great with, film with that final scene in in the in the jail with uh, with with Noel being applauded. Uh, look, and he, and Graham Payne was in it too. His that's lover. Right, that's right. I mean, I wonder if it was. Look, the whole thing was just fascinating. His his love affair, which was not consummated love affair with Gertrude Lawrence, who he started out acting with as a very young boy and ended up writing private lives for her, insisting on putting himself into the roles and the money issues that led him back to America via Las Vegas with that offer of a show in the in the 50s and 60s and he became a massive TV star in America. Well, that was pretty incredible too, that the, he, he just took to Las Vegas like a duck to water and, in fact, the Americans adored him. But his his songs, I discovered Noel Coward when I was in my early 20s. Talk about an old fogey I must have been because I bought albums that he sings the songs to. And I could still, uh, well, maybe at a pinch these days, but as a party trick, sing, sing the stately homes of Eng- England from beginning to end. But well, I Mum think, broke up out into one in the well, we were, cinema's Gina, car park when we were leaving. Gina, but your mum and I were singing. We were singing together. And um, so I was saying to her, the stately homes. So this is just an example of the brilliance of this man. He, remember everybody, he did not, he had no training in the musical sphere and he sang, he wrote these words, which are brilliant. I'm not going to sing it. I'll spare you that. But he uh, but he also wrote the music, um, just sat down, all, all just... Um, just play, had a brilliant ear, a brilliant ear. The stately homes of England, how beautifully they stand. To prove the upper classes have still the upper hand, though the fact that they have to be rebuilt and frequently mortgaged to the hilt is inclined to take the guilt off the gingerbread and certainly damps the fun of the eldest son. <laughs> but still we won't be beaten. We scrimp and scrape and save. The playing fields of Eton have made us frightfully brave. And on it goes. So when he's performing that in this part of the documentary, which is this series of Las Vegas cabaret thing, and, and in the crowd, Caro, in the audience, we have Frank Sinatra, Marlena Dietrich. They're all there to, to be with him. They, they, they're all, he's adored. He was adored. There was another great scene in a somewhere when he goes back to England and James Mason is sitting in the crowd. I mean, it's quite extraordinary what he did. Private Lives is one of the most beautiful love stories, funny, light, witty. And his, and his blue, his, his, the blue he had later on with um, playwrights like John Osborne and Harold Pinter mm. and the whole kitchen sink drama sort of genre that he just hated. And they had a really interesting interview with John Osborne. He said, look, I had to write to him and say, you know, get off our backs. We're all in this together. No, really good documentary and also the about fact, the boy. And also the fact that Noel was very wary of wearing a polo neck sweater in public for fear that he would inadvertently out himself. There were all these extraordinary moments in this doco. Anyway, highly recommend Mad About the Boy. And I'd love to go and live where he ended up dying in Jamaica, in that beautiful part of the world. Corey, um, speaking of citrus. Yeah. In a on circle. You've got a, a ripper orange cake recipe. I have indeed. This is called Jane Horn's Orange Cake. And before I give you the recipe, Caro, I would just like to thank Mr. Cobram, Cobram Estate Olive Oil, the best in the business and, of course, a much-loved product from you and I, but a much-loved sponsor as well. So this is Jane Horn's Orange Cake, Caro. It doesn't have any olive oil in it. 
um, but um, you will love it nonetheless. And this is from, do you remember a few years ago I was plugging like fury the Hamilton College cookbook from Hamilton, Victoria? You've never local... stopped plugging it. It's a great cookbook. <laughs> the, school, the school community got together and during the, the very first Victorian lockdown, the parents and friends pulled this together and it is often my go-to. And the other day I had about six oranges in the bowl which had not been eaten or squeezed and I thought time to do something with them. So I opened up the treasured um, cookbook and here was Jane Horn's orange cake. Now, it serves eight to ten people and the cooking time is 30 minutes or at least until cooked. And this is all you need, one whole orange <laughs> and the recipe here has in brackets, sticker removed. <laughs> <laughs> One, I mean, could you be so stupid? <laughs> anyway, that's a bit mean, but really. Do you remove all the fruit stickers before you put them in your fruit I bowl? I can't stand seeing the stickers. Me neither. I remove them all. Me neither. I guess maybe the assumption here is that, I mean, I would have thought people in the country would probably have some orange trees, but that's a terrible um, sort of generalisation on my part. But anyway, remove the sticker, everyone. One cup of white sugar, 175 grams of melted butter, three eggs, one and a half cups of self-raising flour, and that's all you need, Caro. Preheat the oven to 180. Yum. Cut up the whole orange into chunks, throw it into the food processor. So you're not even, you don't even have to, like the Claudie Rodin, put it into the microwave or anything. Just throw it into the food presser, food processor and munch it up. Add the sugar, butter, eggs, stir in the self-raising flour, pour into the greased greased. 18 centimetre round cake tin. I didn't do a round cake tin. I did it in a log, a rectangular one, and that was absolutely great. And you bake for 30 minutes or until cooked. Um, the note from this recipe, which is actually presented to the Hamilton College cookbook gang by Kaz Boyd, Kaz says, this cake never seems to get iced in our house. I just sprinkle with icing sugar on the top. It is so moist and it's gone in a flash. So we had some mates over for dinner. I had the oranges, as I said. Whipped this up. Sounds very simple. Whipped this, this recipe. up. It's so simple. But it's like my grandmother, my great-grandmother Isabella's orange cake recipe from the Ballarat Goldfields, which I gave a year or so ago. But this is great because it's got the orange. It's quite texturous and moist um, and it's just fabulous. Um, I just did a, a very basic icing sugar um, and orange juice um, and grated orange peel uh, dressing, uh, dressing, oh, icing, icing the cake and served it with some berries, and it is delicious. This cake you could stick in your Tupperware, and it's great for kids' schools, it's great for an afternoon tea party, anything really. And as I said, I served it as pudding with um, the local gang with a bit of yogurt. Delicious. So that's it. Now, if anybody is interested in obtaining a copy of the Hamilton College cookbook, um, because it's not um, it's not available at all bookshops, um, just contact the Hamilton college.vic.edu.au and follow the prompts to the parents and friends part of the page there. Or um, it is for sale as well. I'm just looking here at hamiltonhampers.com.au. So that's it. Sounds absolutely delicious. And thank you, of course, to Cobram Estate and that beautiful extra virgin olive oil. I wonder if anyone made my lamb Moroccan meatballs from Recipe Tin Eats last week because the extra virgin olive oil is a very important component. And they were, I wonder if there's extra virgin olive oil in Sam's mince tarts that we've been scoffing this morning. Mm, I don't know, but they're pretty delicious. But we will have an olive oil recipe next week. I've got a couple of marinades, so we can talk about that later. 
Thank you to Cobram Estate, and that was BSF for Red Energy for 100% Australian electricity and gas. Corrie, what possibly could you be grumpy about today? What would you think, Kaz? It would be a road. Th- uh, Correct. As you know, I've been doing a lot of rural Victoria in the last week. Oh, no, not a fine. Not no, a no, fine. no. Well, God, I hope not. Well, you don't know until you receive it, so that could come. Stay tuned. I hope not. <laughs> no, this, Caro, is uh, on, on your... Mrs. Google, or Svetlana, as she's known in our car, um, will tell you when there's a speed camera coming up. So yes. I presume this is a service that's available to everybody with a yes. car or a truck, okay? So you're going along the freeway. A, new, a newer car, yes. A newer car. So you're going along the freeway and you're sitting on 100 clicks or 98 or something and the the trucks that are five times the size of your car are belting past you. So you are being... Um, probably quite conservatively thinking they're doing 120, 115, 120. As soon as the voice comes on, you'll notice the traffic all slows down because everybody's getting the message at the same time. When there is a truck in front of you or belting past you on the outside take, take, take over lane and it suddenly starts slowing, it is quite disconcerting. It is, it is quite disconcerting. And then, of course, when the speed camera issue is over, they speed up again. Now, I don't know how many accidents or... Well, they're idiots because there are average speed speed cameras now. Oh, well, I so don't they, know about Particularly that. the Geelong roads are cracker with them, as is uh, Mornington Peninsula Freeway. So they'll say average speed camera ahead. So it's all very well to slow down for well, the speed camera. Well, there you go. There you go. But I... Do you know I, who put me onto average speed cameras? Bomber Thompson. It's a little fact for you. Yeah, he told me about them once. (laughs) Complaining when he first started coaching Geelong. Oh, well, (laughs) About the average speed cameras. (laughs) Well, the Geelong road is full of them. But uh, look, I don't have a problem with speed cameras because, of course, they have done wonders to keep our road toll down. And thank you to to all Victorian parliamentarians who passed that legislation that Big Brother so what is you, watching you're us. grumpy about bad truck I'm, drivers? I'm, dr- I'm, grum- I'm, just, I'm, I'm grumpy about the fact that they break the law, so they're doing 115, 120, sometimes even more, I would suggest, on some roads and some freeways, and then they slow up because obviously the message has got through. Sometimes they don't slow up. But this is obscene that, that vehicles of this size are travelling at this at this pace, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why speed limit is a speed limit. You have Svetlana in your truck telling you to slow down. I don't understand why they are going so fast and breaking the law. Maybe they work for very rich truck business owners who are prepared to pay their fines. Ridiculous. To get them there on time. Well, I hope they I hope they lose their points. Anyway, that's what I'm grumpy about. No surprise to anybody. Yes, it was uh, <laughs> was related to <laughs> to driving. <laughs> Well, as someone who has children in Geelong, Ballarat and the other side of Melbourne and you live in another part of Victoria, I think you really need to repair your relationship with the road. <laughs> because Joel, don't it, giggle. That's it's very not going unbecoming. To, it's not going to end any time soon. <laughs> now, do you want me to kick off six quick questions yeah. for Red Energy? Yeah. Thanks to, again, to 100% Australian electricity and gas, Red Energy. What was the highlight? Clearly not the drive of your weekend trip to Ballarat. Well, I've mentioned the calisthenics, the 40, the 40, um, the 40 performances, which was a highlight. Three and a half oh. hours. <laughs> no, that was good. I can see your halo. Uh, just... The halo is just beaming. Uh, Mary Poppins. Uh, no, do you know, Caro, 
I love civic pride in country towns and I love the way Ballarat gets behind Christmas. And this year in particular, if you're driving down the middle of Sturt Street, there's that really lovely centrepiece, as there are in a lot of country towns, old country towns in Victoria, the beautiful sort of, you know, grass embankment area. And they have gone all out with their Christmas decorations. And the beautiful Victorian town hall has a big sign on it. They have a fabulous Christmas tree that they must have planted. I reckon it must be at least 60 or 70 years old, maybe older looking at the size of it. It's all being decorated. It's beautiful. So if anybody's going to Ballarat, um, have a look at the Christmas decorations. It was a real highlight. And I must say it just got me in the mood even though we've had a bit of a whinge about the silly season, but I did feel a bit excited. As opposed to the Christmas decorations in the city of Melbourne, mm, a bit which tame, have always been so uninspiring. Mm. I haven't been there at night and I love the birds around the arts centre and I love all the things they're doing in St Kilda Road. So I'll give it another go, but gee, they've... Um, the but Melbourne... the birds aren't the Christmas decoration. We no. love the birds. I know, I, I know. The and the M Pavilion opened just up the road from there in... Or are they sort of just outside the Botanic Gardens? They're absolutely beautiful and the Yarra looks great, but in the city they need to really lift their game. Two, two words, Caro, budget cuts. Well, it's been been going for years. Mm. City Council has a lot to answer for. Okay, so um, what was the most disappointing decision by the AFL last week for you? Oh, they completely wimped it on the start time of Friday night football. After being sort of semi, semi-promised, not really promised, by the AFL and by the New Dillon administration that finally Friday night football and that ridiculous start time of 7.50 was going to be moved back to 7.30 or even 7.20 like Thursday nights, um, which meant that it's so much better for kids to watch the footy. I mean, 20 minutes is quite a big difference. Oh, 7:30 yeah. 7.30 start or 7.20 start, which is when Thursday night footy generally starts or and often Saturday to 7.50 is such a difference. So, you know, you watch the ABC News if you're at home and you're watching Friday night footy and it's another 20 minutes till the game starts. Crazy. And the kids are ratty and want to go to bed. Well. You let them see at least one quarter. They wimped it. It's starting oh. at 7.40. They've brought it back. They've brought it back 10 minutes. I mean, how pathetic. Seriously, quite apart from the fact that the Richmond Football Club clearly ceases to exist with the fixture they've been given. Oh, my And, and how, how are your post-season coffees, make-up coffees going? Had, a, had one last week. Mm, I know you got did. Another how one, did it go? Got another one this week. Are you back in the good books? Week? We'll just move on from that, Corrie. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I know this is complete segue. Waking up on Monday morning, going to bed and thinking, oh, the run rate's pretty good and realising we'd won the World Cup when everyone, when, you know, the Oracle Gideon Haig declared on offsiders, we can't win, and then said, look, unless we pay the absolute best cricket we've ever played ever. That was such a great wake-up call on Monday morning. It's put a spring in my step all week. That's good. I'm going to to get involved again in the cricket. Travis Head was – I've sort of got more in – we lost the first two games and I was getting a bit jack of it all. And then, you know, with the Glenn Maxwell, you know, that that unbelievable innings and then the win over South Africa and silencing. They claimed there couldn't have been 130,000 people at that stadium in India. But that was just an extraordinary victory. Mm, It was very exciting. And Pat Cummings deserves to be – Oh, Joel's here. Joel's 99,000. 92. 92. That's can't my you, eyesight. Can't, you, Joel, can't you read his writing? No, no <laughs> clearly not. Um, but um, still, they silenced 92,000 people. I thought the Indians should have stayed out on the ground a bit longer. They claim it was for public safety, seriously. And um, 
I mean, the Brisbane Lions had the most shattering grand final loss ever. They managed to stay out on the ground. Um, yes, so but... Oh, yeah. se- separate issue. Bit of a, no, bit of a difference in the Friday crowd night situation. football, Andrew Dillon, you've absolutely whimped it. Corrie, which imported retail trend continues to amaze you? Well, we just talked about it, Black Friday, Caro, and, and um, I forgot to say earlier that... Did you know that in, in last year, in 2022, Australians spent more than $7.1 billion across the four days of the Black Friday and Cyber Monday shopping event? Oh, my God. $7.1 billion. I feel like... Um, <laughs> That's extraordinary. Mini-me's. That's good. Mini-me's. Who? Dr. Evil. Dr. Evil. <laughs> My um, is that Sabo, the spy? Is that the spy who shagged me? My kids were watching that <laughs> over in London the other dollars. night, and they sent um a video, and they were killing themselves laughing. This is Ned and Clem, and it took Brendan back to when he took Ned to see the spy who shagged me <laughs> back in. Or oh, there was two of them, weren't there? Austin was, Powers. Yeah, Austin Powers was the first one. Um, he said he's never seen, and still to this day, never seen Ned laugh so much as <laughs> in that film. <laughs> anyway. So anyway, Carol, just, just um, this is not my amazing fact, but it's kind of interesting. I don't know whether you realise, and you and I have a real issue with the Black Friday name because of what it means in bushfire Australia. Um, but the police in Philadelphia complained at some point about the influx of people coming to the city to shop the day after Thanksgiving, and they called it a Black Friday because they had to control crowds. I'm sure that's the job of the police, but anyway, um, so that's how it got its name. Now, Caro, if King Charles's pals were upset by the last series of The Crown, who will be outraged by this new series? Oh, the family of Dodi Al-Fayed, Dodi Al-Fayed and Mohammed Al-Fayed, his father, who I think died yeah, last yeah. year, um, the owner of Harrods and the Ritz, who tried so hard to be part of English society and even after the death of his son and Princess Diana in that shocking, tragic car accident in the Paris Tunnel, um, still tried to be pals with the royal family, he comes across really badly, oh, really dear. badly in the fourth series. The sorry, sixth series, six isn't series. it, of the Crown? They've, so as you mentioned the other day, they've dropped four, six more to come in December. Have you I, watched them yet? Well, have of course I have. Don't mind me. I'm just driving around Western Victoria. Um, um, yeah, being harassed by truck drivers in your own mini personal personal version of Jewel. Um, no, look, they they come across particularly the father. Um, Muhammad comes across really badly and rude oh, and um, Corey's alarm. Set. Sorry, my alarm just went off. That up. means we've been talking too. No, long. it means I have to get up and go to the podcast. Um, Prince. <laughs> Prince Charles um, Dominic West is a lot more likeable in this series. Um, Larissa DeBecky is a really good actor. Imelda Staunton as the Queen, as we know, is all wrong. Mm. Um, she is wrong. That brilliant actress who plays um, Princess Margaret, mm. her name will come. She's in everything at the moment. She is wrong. Um, but, look, she's, they're, they're all good in but it. But as you said the other day, the Prince Charles, Timothy West as Prince Charles is too charismatic. Isn't he? He's too charismatic. Dominic West. Oh, Dominic yeah. West. Sorry, yeah, Timothy's no, no, his father. Dominic. You're right. Um, but look, it's interesting. Uh, no spoiler alert. The actual start of the whole series begins with the car accident, mm. and then it goes back eight, eight weeks late, eight weeks earlier, which reminds you of how short a time Diana and Dodie actually knew each other. And the first sort of three or four episodes are really mainly about Diana and Dodie and the kids, but also about Charles and Camilla and um, Charles's desperate bid to get Camilla 
accepted. So, I th- so you know, it's quite interesting, um, the two different stories and the way, I tell you what, like the Robbie Williams documentary, like the David Beckham documentary, the tab- tabloid press, you know, mm. they don't get... Well, and they beat up that relationship. It was, oh. as you say, it was only a few weeks old. Those of us who were, who lived at that time and remember it, it, they were only together for about four or six weeks. Oh, and everybody was talking marriage. She was pregnant. Oh, it's it's, it's absurd. The other the other um, actor I should mention um, is Jonathan Price as Prince Philip, and I think he's sort of wrong too. Really, it's interesting how they've just got it so right for the first couple of of. Um, Groupings of actors, and well, they're so terribly wrong. Maybe it's also partly because we know, we know that these people are so much more intimate to us now than than they were then. Leslie Manville is That's that right. wonderful actor. Anyway, there we are, Corey. Which holiday season movie? And anyway, I reckon the Alfayeds are going to come out swinging, or maybe they already have. Which holiday season movie? I know what you're going to say. Are you most looking forward to seeing? Well, Napoleon's top of the second top of the list, but top of it is Saltburn, Caro. And you and I have seen the posters for this as we've come out of the aforementioned British Film Festival. Um, Saltburn is directed and produced by Emerald Fennell, who, from memory, was up for a, an Academy Award this year or last year. Yeah, for um, a promising young woman. That's and right. She, and she was in that, and she played Camilla Parker Bowles. That's right. In the crowd. And and uh, that's right. And, Younger Camilla. And Emerald Emerald has taken the story of Brideshead Revisited and given it a bit of a twist. Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh, one of the fabulous novels of the 20th century, if you haven't read it, do. Um, but this one is set in England in the mid-2000s, and it follows a young university student who becomes infatuated with his wealthy school chum. And the school chum invites the um, young university student friend to visit him, spend the summer holidays at his eccentric family's uh, castle or, or estate. And that's where things really start to burn. So, of course, those of us who lived through the most brilliant, was it eight or ten part series that the BBC produced in the early eight, 1980s with Jeremy Irons and Sebastian... Uh, no, who played Sebastian? Um, Anthony, Anthony Andrews. Ed, Anthony, Anthony Andrews. Andrews. And Laurence Olivier was Lord Marchmain. Uh, what a brilliant, brilliant... I don't think anything can ever top that for me. But I'm that really too, keen to see that, this That's film. when British miniseries really took off. Oh, that was the didn't one. it ever? You Wasn't went home stunning? every week. Every week it was like Wednesday Night Bride's yeah. on or whatever and it was, night it And was it was on. Lord Olivier's final performance before he died. And... They, I gather they had to uh, work really hard to convince him to take on a television series because, of course, that was so far beneath him, but he just was brilliant. He pops up in the Noel Coward documentary. Yeah, he did. And didn't he? Wasn't he handsome? In fact, oh, your, your well, mum had the hots for him, she, I mean. <laughs> she mentioned. Um, the what, original Mr Darcy. What's, the, uh, what's this week's amazing fact? I've picked up so many amazing facts this week, Corrie. A couple that I'll run by you first. Did you know that if you were a golfer, you're going to live five years longer than the average non-golfer? Well, there you go. I Did didn't you know, know that. that. No, so but I'm looking forward to having those five years while you're five years on top pushing of pushing up daisies. Did you know? See another reason, Caroline, you should take up golf. Did you know? I know I don't mention, find any mention of bridge players in those. <laughs> Did you know that for a dog, five minutes of sniffing? is the equivalent of a 10K walk. 
That's what Trudy told me. No. How do they know that? Her vet told her. How does the vet know that? Well, he's a vet. No. I mean, does the dog come in and say, listen, I've got to tell you, give you the tip. I just got the most extraordinary... Your response is quite similar to Brendan's when I told his. But anyway, I thought that was... I mean, you know how they just... You go, oh, will you just stop sniffing for heaven's sake and have a walk? Don't, because they're having as much exercise or even more than you realise. Really? There you go. But I'm. But they're not my amazing fact this week. I thought about this one when I was um, on a local walk the other day and I walked past Chase's nightclub. Now, I heard on the radio that Chase's nightclub was turning 50 and they're having a big party. So I did a bit of research. Are we going? No, well... There's various different... You know, we should have our 300th episode party Chases. There. There's various claims. As it turns out, some people say it opened not in 1973, but in 1978. In fact, on closer inspection, it actually opened in 1976. So it's only turning 47, which is when you think about, you know, the underground and the redhead and um, what was the one in the Turak village? Oh, um, oh, and, and place, Silvers. Place, Silvers? Yeah, Silvers and the Chevron and Room. Joel would have not heard of any of these places. Um, well, Room maybe. Um, but this has been going since 1976. It's reinvented itself as Puffdorf about 14 years ago. And that Puffdorf starts whatever nights it's on, certainly Saturday nights at 9pm and goes till dawn. Mm. It has three amazing dance floors. Do you know I've never been into Chasers? Oh, you're kidding. Never been there. I don't, or maybe one, maybe oh, once. Oh, it was, it was, um, many, it, many it was, it was, ago. it was not as upmarket as the underground. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Nothing. Remember the Goldsmith sisters on the door. Can I just well, say my this brother, My brother worked at, this... at, at the um, underground or the redhead or one of them certainly as, um, as a, Man. This is a perfect segue because I did want to finish today to say happy birthday to the baby of my life, the real baby, which is Coco. Coco turns 30 this week. And, she's um, much younger than Chase's. <laughs> she's much younger than Chase's. <laughs> but do you know what she's chosen as the theme for her little drink soiree? Not a big, it's not a big party, but she just wants us to all dress in Studio 54. Cool. And do you know the red hot tip for if you've got a disco night coming up, Caro? What? Um, Something H- glittery. Uh, not H&M. Yeah, H&M. Oh, no, no, H&M. Uniqlo. No, H&M. H&M. Sorry, H&M. That's the tip. H&M have full disco. Disco sequins are everywhere. Sequin pants are everywhere. Not that I'll be wearing them, but um, anyway. Well, anyway, getting back to Chase's. Happy birthday, Coco. Where you get a happy birthday, darling, Cokes, where you can actually, um, you know, there, there's all different stuff on but it was actually originally opened by Gary Spry, of course, from the famous Staley, um, in-law of the famous Staley's. I think he later opened Shea Oz up in Sydney, which was very, very big, and son-in-law of Gloria. Married and to Carol, Blythe. yeah. yeah. Um, Carol Blythe. Uh, Carol Staley, who became Carol. Yes, no, he was yeah. actually married to Helen. But oh, anyway, was she? Oh, sorry. And, and married, it is married to Helen, and they're still, they're still very much alive living in Sydney. But um, anyway, they had... Fannies and Glow Glows. He opened Chasers in 1976. And who performed on the opening night at Chasers? Olivia, Olivia Newton-John. Newton-John. Yep. That's, I mean, they've come How along. How did I know that? Because I just told no, you. No, no, we said it at the same time. Well, I um, think I might have been half a second ahead of you. 
Um, anyway, I just think it's extraordinary that? that this nightclub, which looks pretty seedy these days when you walk past, and let's face it, it always did look pretty it's seedy. It's not too late to go there, Carol. The owner is Martha Samus, Samus. She's actually had it now, I think, for more than 20 years, and it was more than 10 years ago, as I said, that it transformed to become a popular popular horn for the LGBTIQ plus community. RuPaul drag race events on Friday nights and, of course, the Poofdorf on Saturdays. And the signs outside are just extraordinary for the Poofdorf. I mean, this is this place has stood the test of time. When you think about Melbourne and you think, I mean, there are places that are heaps older like Florentino and the Flower Drum, you know, famous restaurants, but not many places stay open for 50 years. What is it about the old chasers? Anyway, I leave you with that amazing fact. As you I'm go amazed. off to extend your life with another round of golf. <laughs> And give your dog the equivalent of a 10k walk no, with a five-minute sniff. You know what my dog's <laughs> going to do? Look at me like you've got to be kidding. Is that all there is? Okay, that was such a fun ep and um, lots, of, lots to unpack there. Beware of the office party at Christmas time and take up golf. Particularly if they're on a boat. <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger, Corrie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. We love hearing from you, so join us on Facebook or Instagram at Don't Shoot Pod or email us via feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And if you'd like to support the show, the best way to do it is to tell a friend to listen. Your word of mouth recommendations are just so greatly appreciated. And of course, you can support our wonderful sponsors who make the podcast possible. Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers three times. Maybe it's time you switch to red. Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold pressed in northern Victoria and Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide. Visit princewinestore.com.au.